Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We are preaching through the Gospel of John. We are in the section of John 12. And um, there is much there quoted from the prophet Isaiah. And so John 12, 41 uh, says, Isaiah said these things when he saw his glory and spoke of him. When he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. So John 12, 41 takes us back to where this occurred. And this occurred where he saw the Lord Jesus, where he saw the glory of God was in Isaiah 6, which was his call to the prophetic ministry. It is not an account of his conversion testimony. He's already converted. He is here being commissioned to his prophetic ministry that will take up the chapters to come in Isaiah. But I just want to take one look uh, this morning at an Old Testament text here, Isaiah chapter 6. And our text begins this way, in the year that King Uzziah died. So we'll stop there, and that way we can set the stage. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, it will make us a good contrast to know why he says this and what is going on with a man by the name of Uzziah. Which, by the way, just in case you want to know, he is also named Azariah. In Kings, 2 Kings 15, he is listed as Azariah. Undoubtedly, it has to be him because the description is exactly the same. He begins to reign when he's 16 years old. He reigns 52 years. He gets struck with leprosy and dies in the end. It says that about Azariah. It says he's the son of Amaziah. So that's the same. But for some reason in Chronicles, it mentions him as Uzziah. But it's the same guy. But I want to tell you a little bit about Uzziah. I think it will help us. He was reigning in this time around 748 uh, B.C. to around 734 B.C. People fight about dates all the time, but it was in that general area. He reigns over the southern kingdom, over Judah, 50 plus years. 52 years is what the Bible says. Now I want you to get this part about the 52 years because this should be alarming to every Christian in the room. He did what was right in the sight of God. For 52 years, 52 year track record of walking with God. Nothing's going on in the kingdom. There's no war. There's no upheaval. There's no sin. He didn't go off and have an affair. There's nothing recorded. It's just a peaceful time in, in Judah. And there's, he, he takes over this city, he takes over this city, and he builds this mighty army. He, he must have a lot of wisdom, uh, apparently because the Bible talks about how he even set up these, uh, it doesn't say catapults, but I don't know what else you could call them. They're mounted on the corners of the walls, and they would throw rocks, and they would shoot arrows. And so he designed that and created this in order to defend the, the city. And so he had a great military, everything's at peace, prosperity is going on. And, and in all of that, he's like, man, God's favor. And it is God's favor, but be cautious in God's favor, because what happens is he grows strong. He grows strong and confident in himself. That's the danger. So for 52 years, I'm dependent and strong in God. But now at the end of my life, I've done all these great things. God's blessed me. I must be important. 
And, and, and Uzziah gets to this place. He's, I'm so important. You know what? I don't have to wait on you priest anymore. And I don't have to pay attention to what you have to say. I'll go to the altar of incense and I'll offer up sacrifice on the altar of incense on my own whenever I jolly well please. That's where he got Uzziah. So we're going to the altar of incense, offering up this offering without the priest. Well, Numbers 3.10, Numbers 18 says, if a foreigner comes to the altar, apart from the, the priest, he is to be put to death. And so here's Uzziah. And you know what it took? 80 priests who were men of valor to withhold him from going to the altar of incense. And then God strikes him with leprosy breaks out right there on him and so the priests are like oh my you've been struck with leprosy and those eyes like oh i've been struck with leprosy and they just rush him out of the temple of god you got to get out of here dude and they put him in a separate house and his final time of his life he's in a separate house all alone with leprosy and he dies alone 52 years and you throw all of it away for pride. Everybody in the room has that danger. We don't know that one person, including the preacher in this room, will remain faithful until the end. It's only going to be by the grace of God that we make it. Even after 52 years without the Lord, you cannot endure until the end. Now, that's a little history of Uzziah. Or Azariah, if you want to pronounce it that way. By the way, another interesting detail. His father, you know what happened to his father? The same issue. He grew strong in himself and in pride and he fell. So he inherited the sin of his father, this one of pride and self-reliance. So uh, it's just another piece of history there for you. Now, Isaiah comes to the scene in Isaiah 6. And he marks his prophetic call by saying... It was in the year, 52nd year, of Uzziah that this event, this vision that he's about to see, is when it happened. So the contrast is set. Think of it. The southern kingdom is in sin. Their king is judged by God because he's in sin, because of his audacious pride. And now, God reveals himself to Isaiah in a vision that centers on the altar of incense where Uzziah was struck with leprosy. So you got one man going to the altar of incense in pride, and you got another man having the altar of incense brought to him in a vision because of his humility. That's the contrast. So Uzziah goes by self-motivation. Isaiah has the altar revealed to him by divine prerogative. It's a good position. My thesis this morning is simply this. It's kind of a long sentence, but I think you can get it. When God is seen, when God is rightly seen, which is about what we're going to look at, when He's rightly seen, He will be revealed through His Son. And when the Son is revealed, the truth will be proclaimed. Even if the message is one of divine judicial hardening. All right, let us look at the text, Isaiah 6. We'll only do eight verses, 
uh, for the sake of time and to get the point. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So let's pause here, we'll just take it piece by piece, but here's the caption, if you will. Here's the picture that is set before our eyes. And our text starts out with this remarkable statement that seems to be a contradiction to God's holy word, right? Because why? God is invisible. No one has ever seen God. But the vision starts out, I saw the Lord. How did you saw Him when it says that you can't see Him? How did you see that which is invisible, but yet the text says, Isaiah starts out, I saw the Lord. Now we know from other texts in the New Testament, other places, texts like John chapter 118, no one has ever seen God. The only God, the only one, the one who's at the Father's side, He has revealed, He has exegeted Him. He's made Him known. And, and do catch that. No one has seen God, comma, the only God, referring to Christ. He, the one that's at the Father's side, unless He makes Him known, you won't see Him. Because He's the only one who can reveal Him, because He's the only one who knows Him. Or you're familiar with the First Timothy text talking about God, God the Father, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And then also, we're reminded of the contradiction of that in a sense. Gospel of Matthew, the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then you have a text that Jesus would speak in John chapter 14. Have you been with me so long and yet you don't know the Father? If, look here, Philip. If you've seen me, what? Then you've seen the Father. So there must be a connection, not a contradiction. There must be a connection here. I cannot see God the Father because He's invisible, but yet I can see Him if He met himself in human form if he is enclosed in human flesh then I see him and I behold very God because he's the exact impression of God himself and so here in my text it must be that Isaiah saw Christ which is what he says in John 12 41 this is what he said of Jesus when he saw him and he spoke of his glory now, as we continue this vision, so he saw the Lord, he saw Christ, a Christophany, Christ appearing in the Old Testament, revealing himself to the prophet he's calling to this prophetic ministry. 
Now, I'm not going to elaborate much on these. I'm just going to give you the text in a sense, but I do want it to be emphasized where you get the thrust of the vision. Notice in our text that he sees something about this Lord. He's sitting on a throne. But the text doesn't stop there. throne. What is the implication here? That this throne supersedes every throne, including yours. We put ourselves on a throne at times. Whatever throne you might put yourself on during your week, it's below this one. Because see, this is a high throne. This is the throne that is over every king that sits upon a throne in all of history. This throne is above every one of them. Whether Nebuchadnezzar knows it or not, his throne and his kingdom is in submission under this throne because this one is exceedingly high. It's a high throne. And doesn't Isaiah have a good response right here? What does he say? Nothing. He didn't say nothing. When you come into an apprehension, a vision of the revelation of God on his throne, I'm thinking talking is not the order of the day. Perhaps it's an Ecclesiastes 5 dilemma, is it not? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Let your words be few. So this is a sense in which Isaiah's like, I'm not opening in my mouth based on what is being revealed to me. The train of his temple, the train of his robe fills the temple. I think herein lies the implication that there's not any room for anything else. His train fills the temple. I, I, I just, bear, I just uh, in a sense, challenge the thought of, would you, if you went into the king's throne and his train of his robe is going out, would you stand on his robe? Would you wipe your dirty feet on his robe? It's like, surely Isaiah's not going to get up and wipe his feet on this robe. The implication is, is his robe takes up the whole temple and that the entirety of the glory of God takes up everything and there's no room for the exaltation of man. It's a vision, a God-entranced vision in which God receives all the focus. Look, wake up, church. You don't even have a clue what I'm saying. You don't understand what I'm saying. We come to church and we're worried about what we dress, what we wear, how we comb our hair. Did you say hi? Did I say hi? Did we have fellowship? When was the last time you come to church and the only thing on your heart and mind was the glory of God? His train filled the entire service and you couldn't think about anything but Him. You, you came and you was like, all of every ounce of your being was, I want God to get glory. I want God to be honored. I want God to be exalted. But we come as Americans to a church and we want attention and we leave wondering why we're not having revival. Wondering why God doesn't move. Why His Spirit doesn't speak. Maybe it's because we think things are focused on us. Isaiah knew different. And in this vision... He saw the seraphim. He saw the seraphim. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. They were standing. Now the theological question that people like to mess with is how many were there? All I know is the last two letters, em, makes it plural. So there's more than one. That much is an absolute fact. 
Are there two? Are there four? Are there six? Are there eight? Are there thousands? Becomes the question. Seraphim means burning ones. So let me at least insert this very quickly. There's a lot of angel talk in Colossians, in the New Testament, in the first century. A lot of problems with angelic worship, those types of things. And now in our contemporary culture, everybody's got an angel and a guardian angel flying around in their car. Angel little things sitting on their windowsills and all these angels. By the way, 90% of the angel stuff you can buy at the store are all feminine. And you can't find a feminine angel in the Word of God. That ought to be at least some kind of an awareness. They're all in the masculine form. But we got this... I don't know, this leaning or bent towards angels. Well, here, we've got a view of the seraphim. The burning ones. They're personal. They're spiritual beings. They have faces. They have feet. They have hands. And they speak in understandable speech. Now, how many are there? I don't know. But I do know this from the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. So in another vision with the man Daniel, he says this. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. I assume it's on a high throne. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. And now, here's, what, here's the answer to the number. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him as the court sat in judgment and the books were open. There's a lot of seraphim. All under the direct supervision of the one on the high throne who gives the order and they wait at his beck and command to be obedient to whatever he gives them to do. Now, in our text with Isaiah, we get this description. They had six wings. That's the vision that he saw. And the things that we know is with two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet, right? And with two, they did fly. Now, I have a position. Everybody else has a position. I'm not going to bore you with all the details. I'm just going to tell you mine and just move on. With two, they covered their face. With two, he covered his face symbolizes reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, verse 26, with reverence and awe. In the very sense that an unsinful created being, a seraphim, before the glory of God, his glory is of such luminance that they're not even able to look up on their faces without a covering, without going stark craving blind. Now, if that's the position of an angel, how could we rush in unprepared? If the angels of heaven are covering their eyes because of the glory of God, how do we move about so freely? With two, he covers his feet. Symbolizes humility, unworthiness, and submission to the way or the direction of God. In a sense, we say uh, you walk, live unto the Lord, the way you walk, the way you live, the way you are. I'm going to cover up my feet because it's not about my direction. It's not about my way. It's not about me. I'm going to cover up my feet and you give the marching orders. That's the way I see this two wings covering the feet. And with two, they did fly. Most commentators consistent here 
they immediately go out at the voice of God to do his bidding. Whatever God says, we say amen. That's the way the seraphim function. Now, very small note, just to touch the heart a little bit. The actions of the seraphim versus people in this church and the church in the world across the land. The actions of the seraphim before God and your actions before God, are they in harmony? Do they have any parallel? Your attitude, your preparation, your desire, your heart for the exaltation of God? Is there any parallel between you and the seraphim? Could, could you come along beside the seraphim and not change something in worship? Would, would you look in unity with the seraphim? Or, or if we take the seraphim and you, and we both say, man, I don't think these two people are on the same zip code. We kind of honor or respect do I as an individual bring to worship? Do I have any awe left in me? Does the word awesome mean anything to me? Is there any sense of fear? Any sense of shaking? Do you, do you think this room is a playground? Do you think this is the coffee shop? Do you think this is some place we hang out and just trade our wares? Or, or did we come here to worship God? You say, but, but Pastor, I need you to preach on something that's relevant. This is relevant. Your relationship under a holy God. The thrice holy God. What is your position before Him? When we sang, could you hold back your voice? Or did you lift it as high as you could? I just want to honor Him. They called to one another, these angels. Holy, holy, holy. By the way, it's in Isaiah, but it's also at the end of the book, is it not? Revelation 4.8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That sound goes on for eternity in God's glory for Glory in His presence. Now, a couple of things about this. I do want to refer to something Jono said in just a moment, but be reminded when it comes to this thrice holy God that creation depends on God. But God never depends on creation. Herein lies deep meditation upon God and all of His attributes. A right view of God necessitates humility, awe, and obedience, it brings that about logically. The view of holiness must have profoundly impacted Isaiah. He got it. It affected his life. It, it influenced his writing, did it not? It, it, it impacted him in every way. Edward Young says this. He says, the view of holiness profoundly affected Isaiah. He uses the phrase, the Holy One of Israel, 12 times in the first 30, 39 chapters, 14 times in 40 through 66. It becomes implanted in his mind and heart. He's serving a holy God. Oh, I mean, as a matter of fact, the whole earth is full of his glory. 
Now, you, some of you weren't here, and so this is not my illustration, but I think John had something that really helped me in this text. I don't think I really got the thrust of the thrice holy God. And he described it like if you went into a cave, and you went in there, and it was black, pitch black, dark, and you lit a lantern, and it illuminated a huge, ferocious grizzly bear. Right? You're like, oh my. You run out of the cave, go and say, bear, bear, bear. It's a warning. Don't go in there. It's dangerous. That's the thrust of this text. Isaiah is saying to you, he's holy. He's holy. He's holy. Don't run in there where angels fear to trod. Don't treat him like he's your buddy, your pal, or something like this. He's the holy God of the universe. Be cautious. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Whole earth is full of his glory. The entirety of creation. I think there's a subtle rebuke here, is there not? And the subtle rebuke is this. The Jews think that all of the glory of God is about them and it's in this temple. Newsflash, his glory won't fit in that temple. You, you can't build a temple big enough to contain his glory because it takes up the entirety of the universe. Back to John 12. That's what's happening when the Greeks come. It's not limited to this one nation, this one pocket. Now is my hour come. Now with the death, the burial, and resurrection, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth because His glory takes up all of creation. Psalm 19 has it right, doesn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no place where their voice is not heard. He, put, he sets a, a tent, a canopy. The sun rises. All of creation. The glory of God. People give attention, as I said earlier, to angels in our day and time, but they never speak about angels who talked like these seraphim. When's the last time you heard this? Your grandma, your cousin, your sister Susie, whoever. Hey, I bought this little angel figurine. And you know what? It, it, it revealed to me that God's holy and I'm a, I'm a depraved rebel. But, then, I mean, that's what's happening here. These angels are proclaiming holiness. And in just a moment, Isaiah's going to go, I'm, I'm undone. Yeah, when, when did your angelic figurine give you that no we we get an angelic figurine hanging on our rear view mirror and it gives us goosebumps when we drive you don't need goosebumps you need an airbag seen the way you drive we have a conf again i do want to note this voice of all these angels all this scene here holy 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 the whole earth is full of his glory look at verse four the foundations of the threshold shook the voice of him who called, the house was filled with smoke. You got all of this, if you got 10,000 times 10,000 seraphim and all these coming together, everything's shaking, what power. And then the smoke comes down, a signification of the glory of God coming into the holy of holies. And again, isn't it neat what Isaiah says? <laughs> Nothing until verse 5. And the only thing he can muster up is what? <laughs> It's so radically different than the world we live in. Oh, we had a powerful service at church. I got goosebumps. I felt so good. I felt so wonderful. Man, it was just great. We had a happy, oh, it was good. And Isaiah has a worship experience. And he says, I'm undone. 
Woe, woe to me. What a difference in response. He said, man, we, we have a great church. Oh, what happened to your church? The preacher preached, and I felt like I was depraved. The, the preacher preached, and I was in repentance because the, the truth that he brought broke my heart and showed me the wickedness of my life, and I was repenting and asking for mercy, and I'm learning how to work through repentance because truth is being applied. It's not how people talk about worship. They say, oh, man, the music was great. Oh, the preacher was this, and he had all this stuff, and it was fun. Church isn't fun in that sense. Verse 5. So now Isaiah responds. This is his confession, one verse. And I said, woe is me. Why does he say such a thing? Well, I'm lost. Why are you lost? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The reason I know this is because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe, at least in the Old Testament, according to commentators, a word which in itself may either indicate that calamity has fallen or is about to fall. Think about it. Some other text, think about it this way. Malachi 3, 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who, who can stand when he appears? Think about it, Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who, who, who could do that in relation to the reality of His holiness? Who could go into His presence and even live? You, you read Old Testament stories it's like, uh, uh, I think we're going to die because we saw God. It, it says things like this. There's a sense of such an awareness of God that if I was anywhere near, surely I would die. Why this confession, woe is me? Three things. Maybe, yeah, three things. He recognizes his depravity. I am lost. Now, now, remember, I said it at the beginning. This is not his conversion testimony. This is a Christian who gets a right vision of God. I'm lost. There's impurities here. You cannot see God rightly and come out pure in the sense that your self-assessment is you don't have sin. If you see God rightly, even as the prophet of God, you say, I'm lost. There's things not right with me. I need improvement. I need to be molded. I need to repent. There's things that I need to be delivered from. I'm not holy and perfect yet. That's what Isaiah sees. I'm lost. I'm, I'm cut off, if you want to say it that way. I'm undone. I'm doomed to die. I have been made to cease. It's like it just took the wind out of him. Why did he speak of woe? Why did he speak of such woe? Next line's really clear. Because I am a man. What a comprehension that with a right view of God, the uncreated, you come to this awareness, I'm created. I'm just a man. What is man that you are mindful of him? Why would you have anything to do with such a creature like me? He, he, he begins to see his insufficiencies, if you will. 
and he recognizes in his depravity. Secondly, he recognizes his impurity. My speech is tainted because my speech is tied to my heart. You look, can you, I don't, I don't even know if I can, you can. I, it's just so beyond us. But to hear and see the worship of 10,000, 10,000 of the seraphim singing holy, holy, holy without sin, I recognize I can't sing like that. I can't worship like this because I still have these impurities that I'm working through. One day when I get home, the first thing that I want to do when I walk in the door is I want to sing. Because when I sing, when I get home, there's not going to be sin to prohibit my ability to exalt the one that I love. I'm going to be able to sing with fullness and meaning, without innovation. I'm going to be able to lift my voice and glorify Him in a way that I've never done before. I may have had little moments, but when I get home to glory, I'm finally going to be able to worship. And, and Isaiah, he's surrounded by these thousands. He's like, I can't even sing. Uh, my lips are impure. And he also recognizes the condition of his culture. And I agree with his culture as well as our culture. Not only is Isaiah sinful, the whole nation is sinful. An entire nation is unable to praise God fully. Without repentance, worship is impossible. Praise is the privilege of those who are cleansed. What is the cause of his confession? It's very clear. No other reason given. He confesses his sinfulness in a humility of repentance specifically because he says, my eyes have seen the king. Because of a right view of the king, he has a right awareness of his own heart. He sees him correctly. He sees the Lord of hosts, this one who commands all the seraphim, the one who controls all the armies of heaven. He sees him rightly. It leads to a right confession of his own heart. See, we somehow, we, like, we got guys in here do evangelism and stuff. We go out on the streets, and 90% of the people, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. Why do they say that? They've never seen the king. Because if you see the king rightly, you can't say that. I see the king and I say, man, how in the world could he save a wretch like me? And we have a cleansing. By the way, a right view of God produces a repentant heart. Yeah. And by the way, where there is no repentance, it's because God's not been viewed rightly. Let me put it this way. If you are not repentant as a Christian... The question is this, who are you looking at? So if you're not repentant, who are you looking at? You say, well, I look in the mirror every day and never repent. No kidding. Because if you keep looking in the mirror all your life, you'll see no need to repent. But if you'll look unto the thrice holy God, impurities would be exposed in your own heart. And then you would see the need for verse 6 and 7, cleansing. Look at verse 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken from the tongs from the altar. That's the altar of incense we talked about in the introduction. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Burning coal, 
taken off the altar of incense. This vision of the altar and the stone are symbols to show what God does. God removes the impurity from Isaiah. Touches his mouth. A symbol that shows God's work of purging. Explanation of the symbol. This is not his conversion testimony, but the words of a prophet who's given a vision by the Lord in order to do even greater ministry down the road. The work of confession and cleansing are designed to prepare for the next step of your Christian journey. The verbal affirmation that the guilt is gone and atonement has been made is a great refreshing to the heart. Now let me warn you, this happens in the Roman Catholic Church, we don't want it to happen here. Symbols, without biblical explanation, become idolatrous disasters. Symbols without explanation. There's a symbol here, but there's an explanation. This is what God's done. He's cleansed you, He's forgiven you, and your guilt is removed. How did my guilt get removed? Because there's atonement. It's explained. True repentance does bring about the removal of guilt. By the way, is that not a good word? I don't know what you're thinking right now, but is that not a good word? This, this, is, what is, this is what happens in true repentance. You, you feel guilt or remorse over your sin. When there's true repentance, He takes all guilt away. You were guilty, no doubt about it. But in this act of cleansing, the guilt is removed and then you're free. You don't have to live in guilt anymore because he does away with it. It's power in the blood of the atonement to remove your guilt. You don't have to live under guilt. You don't have to live under this past thing of all this guilt. You don't have to go to some stupid quack counselor and tell him what happened to you at three and what happened to you at eight and what happened to you over here. And then you did this and somebody did that and they hurt your feelings. You can just take all that away because the guilt is removed. You should just walk in Christ. True repentance occurs, the saint can press on to new levels of ministry. And lastly, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, rhetorical questions, Whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, we saw the caption. This is what he saw, verses 1 through 4. We heard the confession, verse 5. We were taught about cleansing, verses 6 and 7. Now the Lord asked this rhetorical question. Who am I going to send? Don't you love this? If you see God rightly, the destination doesn't matter. If you get a right view of God, I don't even need the details. He doesn't tell Isaiah where he's going. You know, whom shall I send? I'm saying, send where? Isaiah doesn't even ask to where. What if God tells Isaiah he has to go to Mexico? What if he has to go to China? What if he has to go to some third world country where Christians are being put to death? He doesn't care. Why? Because he saw the king. He saw the Lord of hosts. And if the Lord's in charge of all the armies that govern all the world, then it doesn't matter where he sends me. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The question, the question leaves room for one to take responsibility. Who will go for us? And you notice the plural here. 
You see the same thing in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image. Undoubtedly a reference to the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all involved in this vision. Who will go for us? For the three persons that make up the Godhead. What an answer. Here I am. Can you not help but think about an Adoniram Judson? Can you not help but to think about missionaries that have gone? What about you? Will there be anybody in this church? It'll be like a Jonathan Murdoch. I'm supposed to go to Mexico. I'm going. I can't even speak Spanish, but I'm on my way. And go for 10 years. And just give you a life for 10 years. Because you, that's what God wanted you to go. Here I am. Maybe somebody in this church will end up in Germany, in Russia, in Thailand. Maybe, maybe some other part of the world. Today you say, you know what? I don't know what God wants me to do. But here I am. If he shows me which way to go, I'm in. I'm in 100%, wherever it is. It can be abortion ministry, it can be street ministry, it can be Sunday school ministry, it can be nursery ministry, it can be missionary all across the world. I don't, whatever it is, God, I don't, you fill in the details. I'm just telling you, I'm in. I'm with you. You don't even know the mission yet. But when the mission's given, and it's beyond comprehension, this mission. You go preach to a people that'll never listen to you, they'll never see, and they'll never understand, and they'll just get hard-hearted, and they'll hate you. I'm in! He's, that's what he signs up for. Whatever you define, I mean, and he spends the rest of his prophetic ministry preaching to a people who will not listen to him. Why would Isaiah say that he would do this? Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. If you see Jesus rightly from the pages of Holy Writ, you will be in awe. Confess your sinfulness cleansing from him and you will be fully submissive to the degree of immediate obedience to whatever he assigns for you to do Jesus said the hour has come he hardens the hearts of the Jews in accordance with their unbelief and the result of his death burial and resurrection will be that the gospel will literally go to the very end of the earth now in conclusion the cause of Isaiah's prophecy is the vision he had of the Lord Jesus. The cause of Isaiah speaking judicial hardening was directly tied to his view of Jesus. Oh, that we would view Jesus in such a way that we would understand his glory more fully. Our sin more thoroughly our need for cleansing more accurately, and our responsibility to be his ambassador more obediently. What about you today? Have you ever caught a glimpse of the glory of Jesus? Will you go wherever he sends you to go? Will you repent and believe him Right now? Right now. You say, what? I, I'm unclean. Would you do that right? I'm unclean. I've broken God's law. I believe Christ alone can atone. Would you do that right now? Will you ask to be cleansed? Rejection is prideful. Indifference is hateful. Humble obedience is beautiful.
Will Jeff come and lead us in our closing song?